Hey everybody, thanks for joining me today for our Equip session. So glad that you're taking some time to be with me today for a few minutes to talk about a topic um, that is challenging for many and challenging for a lot of us, but it's the topic of how to understand violence in the Bible. Right now, we're actually in the middle of um, teaching through a series in the, book of the, in the book of the Bible that's called Judges. And one of the things that we notice when we're in the book of Judges, there's a lot of violence. There's a lot of violence of, of actually, not, not just of um, those outside of God's people, but actually God's people. Um, there's a lot that, that's happening. And so we want to be able to address well, what do we do with the violence that we see in the Bible and how should we think about that? And I know that's also a, a, a stumbling block or a hangup for even many people that would consider to follow Jesus, but some of the things that we read in the Bible are pretty challenging. So let me just say, if you're a follower of Christ today, I'm grateful that um, you're, you're joining me, and I hope this will be um, helpful for you as you think about our God, you think about our faith, you think about the people of God and what God calls us to, and when you think about the way that you relate to those who may not yet believe. And so I hope it will be helpful for you and for those of you who are not yet followers of Jesus. Maybe you're investigating, maybe you're considering, and this is a thing that's kind of a hangup for you to grapple with, man, what we see in the scriptures. It's in many ways, it's a, a pretty bloody book at, at parts. And so what do we do with that? I'm so glad that you're, you're with me um, as well. And let me just say from the beginning, this is going to be heavy content this is not for everyone. Uh, it's going to be heavy. It's going to be um, somewhat heady as well as we, we talk about a, a challenging subject. Um, and so it's not for everyone, but um, I'm glad that you're joining me. And two resources I'll mention as we begin. One is a document that, um, that I'm actually going to be using as, as my outline for what I'm walking through. It's how to understand the violent understand violence in the Bible. That will be in the description um, of our YouTube of the video. And then as well, there'll be another uh, link to a um, to, to a video from the Bible Project um, on the same topic. And so you can find that in the description, um, a link in the YouTube description um, as well. So here's the problem. When we look at the Bible, um, the, one of the challenges that we face is that it's, it's in many ways a gruesome book. I mean, we read about um, the story of the flood and God really kind of wiping out everyone on the planet except for Noah. We look at the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, which is really a kind of annihilating an entire city of people. We look at the conquest of Canaan in the book of Judges and Joshua, and we see how God commanded the nation of Israel to drive out other peoples. It seems kind of like ethnic cleansing. It seems like God's doing or God's encouraging his people to do what he forbids doing at other places in the Bible. And so how could a good, loving God justify some of these actions of, of his own actions as well as some of the actions of his people? Um, and it's just kind of troubling. And, then, and when we look at the actual book of Judges, it's, there's troubling content in, in there, the violence of what God's people are doing, the way that they're killing people, slaughtering people. I mean, the armies, the, the wars, the battles. Um, what do we do with that? Well, let me just mention um, a few insufficient responses, some things that aren't sufficient as we think about this uh, topic. It's not sufficient to say that, well, those were just primitive times. Those were just primitive times, you know, it was a long time ago, and so we shouldn't even worry ourselves with it. That's not sufficient. 
It's also not sufficient to say that the context was different. And so just because the nature of the context was different, and we live in a different context, and this is the New Testament age, and that, that, that doesn't erase the, the questions and the challenges either. It's not sufficient to say, well, we just don't believe in the Old Testament, or um, we're just not going, we don't think the Old Testament is, is, is actual valuable or, or, or whatever. Or it's not sufficient to say, well, we just, we just can't believe the Bible because that's not a sufficient answer either. And lastly, it's just not sufficient to turn a blind eye and to ignore these realities and act like they're not problems for us or challenges that we should face. So here's what I'd like to do. I'm going to walk through some theological foundations, several theological foundations. Um, and then once I have walked through a few of these, um, I'm also going to talk about the biblical and historical context of Joshua and Judges specifically. And then I'm going to offer um, a few final considerations. So, so here we go. Some theological foundations. Here's number one. Scripture is the final rule of authority for all matters of life and practice within the church and for the believer. Now, if you're a non-Christian, if you're not a believer and you're hearing this, you're gonna, you need to recognize there are some theological foundations that we believe in, that we operate from, um, that, that kind of guide our faith. Now, if you're not a Christian, you don't believe in the Bible, then you know, I can't make a circular argument that, that you should have to believe that. You've got to do the hard work of saying, is the Bible something that I should even consider believing and trusting in in the first place? For those of us who are, who are Christians, Hopefully we've gotten to the point where we do trust the Bible, and it, the reason that we trust the Bible is because what Scripture actually says about itself is that it's the final rule of authority for all of matters of life and practice, and we see this is actually the, the posture of Jesus. This is the posture of many of the apostles, many of the early church leaders. They would take the same posture to the Scriptures, and so first of all, the Scripture, it's, it's the final rule of 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 authority for all matters of life and practice within the church and for the believers, for believers. And so therefore we hold to it as authoritative. Uh, number two, um, because our rebellion, because of our rebellion against God, humanity is entirely corrupt in our moral essence. So we have to recognize that what scripture says is that human beings don't start out neutral in the world. We're not morally neutral. It's not like we have an opportunity to, 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 Go, do good or bad. What we see when we look at the scriptures is that we're actually, because of a legacy and actually because of a lineage and because of a bloodline, we're, we're actually, you could say, predisposed to make bad decisions, to sin or to rebel against God. And that brokenness, it's, it's our entire being. It's every sphere, every aspect of our being is actually sinful. So a few scriptures, Job 15, 14 says, what is man that he can be pure? Or who is he born of a woman that he can be righteous? And kind of the conclusion there is, is, is no one. David would say in Psalm 51, 5, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. So from his very conception in, as existence into the world that there's something, uh, there's iniquity, there's something broken about his very being. Ephesians 2, 3 would say, Paul would say, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature, so our very nature, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Paul says there's not like good camp over here and bad camp over here. We're all, our very nature, is we're children of wrath. We're broken, we're depraved people. So because of our rebellion against God, we're all entirely corrupt in our moral essence. So we don't start out good or we don't start out innocent. We actually start out um, sinful and, and wrong and wicked. Next, because of our sin against the holy God, humanity is only deserving of judgment. So because of this sin, because of this posture, because of this rebellion, because of this treason against God, 
what we deserve, and, and really the only thing that we are deserving of is judgment. It's the judgment of God. God would be completely just if every single person that was sinful, that was born in this way, that lived this way, um, if they got the rightful treatment of their actions against God. That w- he would be completely just in doing that. Um, Romans 6.23 says this, for the wages of sin is death, which meaning the, what you should be paid for your sin, it's death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. Romans 5.12 would say, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, speaking of Adam, the head of humanity, he was the federal headship is what theologians re- refer to it as. He was the head of humanity. He was representing, representing of all humanity. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all have sinned. And so therefore, the the deserving judgment and consequences of our actions should be the, the just penalty of um, the wrath of God. Next, as the creator of the universe, God is the owner and possessor of all the earth. So God owns everything. He possesses everything. All the land is his. It belongs to him. Whether who lives on it, whether who resides on it, it belongs to God. He's the possessor and the owner of it. Deuteronomy ten fourteen. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. Psalm 24, 1 and 2. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein, for he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Psalm 89, 11. The heavens are yours, the earth also is yours, the world and all that is in it. You have founded them, speaking of God. So God is the possessor and the owner of all the earth. Next, the very character of God. So now we're talking about the character of God. The very character of God is holy and upright, the epitome of moral perfection. So God in his very essence, he's the epitome of moral perfection. There there is nothing immoral about him. He is the very manifestation of moral perfection in his character. Leviticus 11:44 would say, "For I am the Lord your God, consecrate yourselves therefore and be holy." For I am holy. Holy means just blameless. It means, it means altogether other in its very essence. Exodus 15, 11. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? God's holiness, it's majestic. I mean, that's how holy he is. That's how pure he is. His moral perfection is of that quality. And so his very character is holy and upright as well. The very character of God is just and righteous and equitable. So not only is he holy and upright, but his character is also just, which means he does what is right. It's just and righteous. He's the very manifestation of righteousness and justice and um, equity. His character is equitable. Deuteronomy 32.4, the rock, his work is perfect, speaking of the Lord, for all his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness, and without iniquity, just and upright is he. Psalm 89, 14. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. This is ultimately understanding the divine justice of God, that at the very nature and the very character of God, he is just in all his ways, and everything that he does is right and is righteous. As well, The very character of God is loving and merciful and gracious. So not only is he holy, not only is he justice or just, he is also loving. He is loving, his steadfast love. He is merciful. 
and he is gracious. Mercy is not giving people what they deserve. Grace is giving people what they don't deserve. He is very loving and merciful and gracious. Psalm 118.1 says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Psalm 100, verse 5, For the Lord is good, his steadfast love endures forever, his faithfulness to all generations. Romans 5.8, But God shows us his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's the ultimate manifestation of the love of God, is that even when we were sinners, even when we did not deserve it, Christ died for us. What a loving God. Now here's the next theological foundation. The actions of God's people are often contrary to the character and the commands of God. So when we look at the scriptures, what we often see is that the people of God are not always in um, right relationship with the commands of God and the character of God. They're often contrary to one another. Exodus 39.2, and the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people and behold, it is a stiff necked people. Acts 7.51, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Psalm 81, 11 through 13, but my people did not listen to my voice. Israel would not submit to me, so I gave them over to their stubborn hearts to follow their own counsels. Oh, that my people would listen to me, that Israel would walk in my ways. So one of the things often we see when it comes to violence in the Bible is that the people of God are often living and acting in a way that is contrary to the character and the commands of God. People of God aren't always the right representation of um, what they should be and of what uh, God's people should be. And so we need to recognize that God's people are broken, they're flawed, they're not perfect, and their actions are not always endorsed and condoned by God or his character. As well, the scriptures contain both descriptive and prescriptive content. Not everything described is prescribed. So when we look at the scriptures, um, much of what we see is um, story and narrative. It's descriptive. It's basically, it's describing things that happen. In in many ways, the Bible is a historical book. It's giving us the story. um, Literally, it's written over 1,500 years from the beginning to the end. Um, 1,500 years of historical narrative of the story of God's people and the different journey and the different seasons and epics of God's people. And so just because we read some things in the scriptures that describe the people of God, it's not necessarily prescribing the things that we should do. There's a difference between prescriptive content and descriptive content. Uh, Prescribing is commands. These are things that God commands. These are things that are universal truths. These are things that are um, expected of God and of us that we should do. We need to recognize that not everything that we see is um, prescribed. Some of it is just describing it, and some of it is describing awful things that we should never um, follow as well, actions of God's people. Next, as we wrestle with the scriptures, we must maintain a posture of humility and trust in an infinitely wise God. We need to recognize um, this is not a pass. This this is not saying that, well, you're just never going to understand everything that God does. But there is a recognition that we will not be able to fathom everything that God does in his infinite wisdom. We are finite beings and God is infinite. It would be illogical for us to think that we can arrive at God's ways, God's thoughts, God's intellect. If we were able to do that, that would actually make us God. And so there is something necessary about our relationship with God that we are not infinite as he is. 
The scriptures would say, Romans eleven thirty three, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how unscrutable, inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? God's ways and his judgments, they're, they're unsearchable when it comes to man's mind and thinking about um, what God does and what God thinks. Isaiah 55, Isaiah 55, eight, eight through nine says, God says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. At some point, you and I have to get to a place where we recognize we aren't gonna have all our answers. The spiritual process, the theological process, isn't a process where you arrive at all your answers. We're never going to arrive at all our, our answers. Um, there has to be a recognition that at some point, I'm not going to understand everything. I'm not going to understand the mind of God, the heart of God, and the thoughts of God just because his ways are different than my ways. And there will require me to, at points, submit my finite thoughts to his infinite wisdom. And we have to recognize that. And so those are, that's 10 theological foundations for the conversation. Um, as well, um, let's talk about the biblical and historical context of Joshua and Judges. So this is the context. What we see in Joshua and Judges is God's command to his people, the Israelites, to, it's the conquest of Canaan. This is the promised land that God has promised for his people, and he's commanded his people to go in and to dwell there and to live there and make it their new home, the new central base for the people of God. Now, what is so special about Canaan? Why Canaan? Why this land of Canaan? Where does that come from? Well, if you'd go all the way back to Genesis chapter 10, what we see is that uh, the grandson of Noah, one of the grandsons of Noah, is actually a man named Canaan. He's one of the grandsons of Noah, and the Canaanites were those descendants of Canaan. <clears throat> In many ways, Canaanites is kind of like a junk drawer term for a lot of different nations that would have been in that area, including Sidon, Heth, the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, the Archites, the Sinites, the Arvidites, Zemurites, the Hamathites, and probably even more. Canaanites um, were, that language was used to, uh, to to communicate a lot of different people that would have lived in that area. And so this would have been kind of the Mediterranean coastland, um, including Lebanon, um, as well as Phoenicia, and what some call the Gaza Strip, um, corresponding to Philistia, um, the city of Philistia. Um, and it also it would include the Jordan Valley um, area. And so what we need to step back and to recognize is this context, these people who are these Canaanites and who are these people that are living in this area? Well, what we will see when you look at the scriptures is that unfortunately Canaan had led his descendants to be a ruthless people. I mean, of all the scripture passages, the Canaanites are unbelievably ruthless. They are what scripture refers to as an abominable um, people and their practices are abominable. And so Deuteronomy 18, nine through 12 would say, God would say, when you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you, you should not, shall not learn to follow the abominable practices of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or his daughter as an offspring, which is what they did. Anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens or a sorcerer or charmer or a medium or a necromancer or one who inquires of the dead. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. And because of these abominations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you. So we need to recognize that these Canaanites, 
They're not like innocent people that are nice people that are just trying to live their life. No, they are unbelievably ruthless and destructive in their behavior and in, even in their religious practices. And what was very common of the Canaanites is that they practiced child sacrifice. So in order to appease the gods, they would actually take their children and their infants and they would sacrifice them on fire, literally burn them at the stake as a way to try to appease um, their gods. And then they practiced all sorts of abominable, um, immoral, um, sexually immoral, just devious practices that were really destructive and harmful for um, the world at large. Um, one commentator would say, Canaanite worship was socially destructive. Its religious acts were pornographic and sick, seriously damaging to children, creating early impressions of deities with no interest in moral behavior, it tried to dignify by the use of religious beliefs or religious labels, depraved acts of bestiality and corruption. It had a low estimate of human life. It suggested that anything was permissible, promiscuity, murder, or anything else in order to guarantee a good crop at harvest. It ignored the highest values both in the family and in the wider community, love, loyalty, purity, peace, and security and encouraged the view that all these things were inferior to material pr prosperity, physical satisfaction, and human pleasure. A society where those, th those things matter most is self-destructive. One writer would say, the destruction of the Canaanites is not an attack on innocent people. It's God's judgment against abominable, abominable, I'm having a hard time saying that word, abominable sin. So God, we need to recognize, even before Joshua and Judges, gave this land to Abraham initially. Abraham was instructed to establish a new nation in this land. But because of God's people through famine, um, because of a famine, God's people would leave Canaan and they would actually go to Egypt. And you can remember the story of Joseph if you are familiar with that story. And then after the exodus of Egypt, God is bringing his people back to his promised land, what he initially originally promised to Abraham in the first place. So here are a few final considerations with all that being said. Now let's actually get to the brass tacks of, of talking about the difficulty. Um, this is the first thing. The conquest of Canaan, of the Canaan war, uh, was not carried out on the basis of race or imperialistic expansion. So first of all, we need to recognize that this wasn't about some kind of genocide of wiping out some kind of race or God getting rid of some ethnicity or some kind of racial animosity or some kind of imperialistic um, expansion. Um, this wasn't based on, on race. This wasn't based on um, ethnicity. This, this, this was based on um, justice. This was based on judgment. This was based on the actions of these people and what, how contrary it was to what God wanted for um, humanity. Next, the conquest of Canaan was carried out on the basis of the judgment of God. So this is, this is the judgment of God. The reason that, that God is, one of the reasons that God is doing this is his judgment. And so this is a, an action of God's judgment and his justice um, that these people would be removed, would be removed from this area, and that they would experience the, the consequences of their actions even through death. And so this entire conquest it isn't about race or ethnicity or imperialism. This is, this is based on the judgment of God and the justice of God against the Canaanites. As well, the conquest of Canaan, of God's people of moving into Canaan and taking this land, 
um, was based on direct revelation from God for a specific historical, historical situation. So it would be not correct for us to take this scripture, which is descriptive, and to say, well, now um, I'm going to apply this to my life, and I'm going to as well have a conquest where I'm going to take over land. No, this was a specific situation. This was a specific historical context. There was direct revelation from God in order to carry out these actions. And so we can't make the translation that, oh, now because they did it, that gives us the justification that we can do it as well. No, this conquest was based on the direct revelation from God. And at the end of the day, judgment is not our responsibility. Judgment is not our role. Judgment on the nations, judgment on the world, whatever, is not our responsibility. It's the responsibility of God. And so that isn't in our court to um, initiate or to practice judgment against the world. No, that's God's responsibility, and he's going to carry out his judgment in the ways that he sees fit. Next, the conquest of Canaan is not a prescription for how we should relate to the world. So this is not a prescription for how we should think about the world. This is not a prescription for how we should think about land, for how we should think about. What's unfortunate is that some people under the name of God and under the name of the Bible have historically used scriptures like these and stories like these to justify their own imperialism or their own conquest. The conquest of Canaan in the scriptures is not a prescription or justification for how we should relate to the world. As well, next, the kingdom of God is no longer geographically limited to one place, but extends to the ends of the earth. So we don't have the, the need or the desire or even the command that the kingdom of God has to be now physically located in one geographical space, but we see now the, the gospel in the kingdom and extends to all the nations. It extends to all the earth, to the ends of the earth. And so therefore, we don't have to try to gather land as if we're building something or building some kind of kingdom that needs some kind of land or establishment. Obviously, we will operate in various places around the world, but the kingdom of God is no longer geographically limited um, to one place. It extends to the ends of the earth, wherever the people of God and the gospel of God reaches. And then here's the last one. Jesus' teachings and commands demonstrate that we should practice nonviolence, love, and blessing to all people, even our enemies. And so if there is confusion about what we read and there's challenges about what we read and, man, what should we do about that? How should we live? How should we operate in the world? Well, we know that in Jesus and his teachings and his commands are very clear um, that we are supposed to be demonstrating nonviolence to the world. We're not supposed to be taking up the sword. We're not supposed to be killing people. We're not supposed to be um, practicing these kinds of similar actions that we see, but rather we're actually supposed to be laying our life down taking up our cross, following Jesus, loving all, blessing all, even our enemies. And the scriptures would say specifically in the Sermon on the Mount how we're supposed to love those who revile us and bless those who persecute us and that we're supposed to love our enemies and treat them with love. So here's kind of how I'll, I'll wrap it up in summation. We read some things that are very difficult in the scriptures about the commands of God and the actions of God's people that are challenging. Much of what we read, um, the violence that is condoned by God against others is the judgment of God. 
And we live in a society um, where we don't like to talk about judgment often, but we need to recognize that God is not only loving, but he is also just. God is a judge. God has commands. God has a law. God has expectations. God, it's not a free-for-all. God isn't just going to allow us to live however we want to live, but there, is, there are actually um, commands and, and laws and expectations that God would have of his people, and we know that those commands and those statutes, those teachings, whatever they might be, are ultimately for our good and for the good of human flourishing. And so we see here, this is the judgment of God, and the judgment of God, it happens presently, and it also happens future. God can enact judgment now, presently, and he can also enact judgment in the future. And not all God's judgment in the scriptures is future judgment, it's actually present judgment. And here we see in these scriptures where God enacts his judgment against nations and peoples and groups who are wholly wicked, contrary to his commands and his heart, and are experiencing the wrath of God and the judgment of God. As the people of God, now as followers of Jesus, um, we live under that recognition of the judgment of God, which encourages us honestly to live a holy and an upright life, to live a life that's pleasing to the Lord and that's in alignment with his commands for us. And we live in love, we live in peace, we follow the ways of Jesus, we don't carry the sword, we carry the gospel, and we carry the gospel and we love and we bless all peoples of all nations, of all races, um, of all um, ethnicities. And so um, I hope that helps. Um, I hope that equips you for understanding and wrestling with these challenges that we face in Scripture, recognizing that uh, we do have um, God's Word, which we can trust, and a God who is good and is loving for us. Thank you. Thank you.